Hello and welcome to The Manifest Image, the podcast about art in the 20th century as seen through the manifestos that defined its development. We aim to look at the texts themselves, those who wrote them, and the art they made from the perspective of artists living at the time. I'm Ariel de la Garza. And I'm Thomas Greengrass. This week, we look at Electrical War by F.T. Marinetti, the old standby. Although it was first published in Le Futurisme in 1911, four years later, when Marinetti translated it to Italian, he broke it up into two parts, believing that although the text had a through line, it was best split. The first part is The Birth of a Futurist Aesthetic, and the second, Electrical War, a Futurist Vision Hypothesis. We are going to follow that convention, so this week we start with The Birth of a Futurist Aesthetic. And now, some selections. The contradictory forces of finance and revolutionary labour unions, new developments in metallurgy, electrical engineering and aviation, the right to strike, equality before the law, the principle of majority rule, the revolutionary powers of the masses, the speed of international communications, recent habits of hygiene and domestic comfort which require large, popular, well-ventilated apartment blocks, Absolutely comfortable trains. Tunnels, iron bridges, huge and fast ocean liners. Hillside villas shrewdly sighted towards the cool sweep of horizons. Immense meeting halls and perfected chambre de toilette for the rapid daily care of the body. Second selection. In our first manifesto, you have read this affirmation which raised a hurricane of disapproval. A racing car is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. I will leave you an explosive gift, another image that best completes our thought. Nothing is more beautiful than the steel frame of a house under construction. And thirdly, you ought to fear everything from the moss-grown past. All your hope should be in the future. Put your trust in progress which is always right, even when it is wrong, because it is movement, life, struggle, hope. And be sure to avoid quarrelling with progress. It may well be an imposter, a traitor, an assassin, a thief, an arsonist, but progress is always right. Well, thank you. Those are some strange selections from a very strange one. This is a weird text, isn't it? I'm so glad that we're doing this one and that we're even spending two episodes on it because of all of the different editions that have futurist manifestos, this is one uh, that doesn't make the cut in a lot of them. And it's so different, uh, especially the two parts of it. There is a different format between the two. This first, the the birth of a futurist aesthetic, it's very general. It it sort of talks about uh, the everyday living. It's it's not uh, a manifesto about painting or about sculpture or about theatre or about photography. He's really uh, doing a, a defence. He's he's replying to objections or or trying to foresee objections. But he's actually using everyday life uh, or what everyday modern life of that time, the early nineteen hundreds. But also, I think what we can see a lot of today. Um, as uh, as part of his defense and in terms of its form he's far softer in it mm-hmm. he's uh, but before he, we get he, to that yes the pithy how about summary. A little summary okay so <laughs> pithy summary nice and quick this is not what this manifesto is like but we're going to do a nice and quick one 
It's a defense. Res uh, two responses uh, to an objection. Only good works survive as masterpieces. And two, mysticism, religion, all of these are gone. There is nothing in modern life. Modern life is dedicated to comfort, hygiene. Old things have no value to us in this modern state. Our modern world has abolished and diminished space and time as concepts. Seasons have merged together. Days and nights have merged together. We're going to complete the first manifesto. We're going to look at sacrifice, bones and coal, brutality, war and the sun. That's my pithy summary. Okay, good. Good. I think, I think that uh, gives the listeners some idea what's happening here. And... Um Sorry, should I just carry on from the from yeah, where yeah. I left Go off right with the form? Um, yeah, he he doesn't dive in like he does with some of his other works. As, uh, a great example would, uh, to compare it would be uh, "Let's Kill the Moonlight" or "Let's Murder the Moonlight," where he actually has this rather rough and uh, an aggressive, uh, bloody manifesto at the beginning that then leads into this story that kind of encapsulates the ideas. Here. He's, he's very soft and delicate. He begins by trying to foresee an objection, gives these two somewhat strange answers that we'll look at, and then he, he, he tries to uh, uh, provide an exegesis of futurism, but mm. allows the reader to sort of dip their toes in futurism, as if you're sort of getting into a hot bath. Normally, he just sort of throws you in, throws you in at the deep end or something like that. But no, this time he's going to allow you to slowly wade in, dip your toes, get accustomed to the temperature, and then ease you in before, by the end of it, he takes an off Yeah, off really, course. really smacking you over the head with the coal bit. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like the bones and coal in the pithy oh, summary? No, I found it awful. Is that yeah. even true? It, it seems false to me. Because I, I tried to look up some of this stuff, and it wasn't in any of the notes that I could find easily. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to do too much digging. It seemed a, a fairly miserable topic. And I wouldn't be at all surprised yeah. if he's inventing things. But we, we can get to yeah. that. We will, we will. Would you so, like to begin with the, uh, uh, that first question? Because he, he begins with an objection. Yeah, let's do it. He, I mean, this is both different but, but also true to form. No? Because many times uh, in previous ones, including the first manifesto, he will challenge the reader in a way. Mm -hmm. he, or he challenges himself. And you're right. In this case, he challenges himself rather than whomever's reading it. And he anticipates this great challenge, no? Um, kind of, what new is better than the glories of old? Mm. Um, it's funny, again... Do, do you want to read it out, or should I do the actual reading of the, the little section? I can reading? do it, I can do it. So he, he, he asks, What, you say to me, are the works in stone, marble, or bronze that you can set against the inimitable works left to us by past centuries? And he has this simple answer. One, the masterpieces of the past are all that remain of a vast number of works of art that have disappeared because of their ugliness or fragility. So you really can't ask us to oppose the masterworks of a mere 50 years to a select ensemble gathered over the course of a millennium. 
And two, I say that modern phenomena such as cosmopolitan nomadism, the democratic spirit, and the decline of religions have reduced to uselessness the great decorative imperishable buildings that once expressed kingly authority, theocracy, and mysticism. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to a lot there. refine, yeah, to just to refine the question then. So he's considering this objection of, we've got these great masterpieces of the past. What have you got that can compare, that can stand up or surpass any of these works? Mm-hmm. And do you find his answers surprising? Because I do. I do. I, the first one is, is kind of weak. He gives, a, he, he gives up so much ground. He gives, he actually just... He's, he he simply says it's defensive. Yeah, he's, he's, he's conceding the point. Yeah, he concedes the point. He he says, uh, yeah, no, we we don't. Yeah, those work. <laughs> and and it, he seems to have conceded so much. He's given up so much ground where he actually admits, yeah, no, they, they are masterpieces. Yeah, but only those that are masterpieces. And and we kind of, I think you can actually try to extrapolate from this um, some. Uh, thoughts about what constitutes a masterpiece one it seems to have to be made of some sort of rugged material um mm-hmm. and two it has to be beautiful in the right kind of way uh where people won't destroy it so even if it is made from a durable d- material that so and that seems to be it because he says you know they have di- disappeared because of their ugliness or fragility you can imagine something that was very beautiful but was simply made from something that that w- was especially perishable um, that's that's an odd answer from him, though. It is. This is why I think this right? is actually a really important work in understanding futurism. Yeah, I mean, I would think that he would rather say that so many masterpieces have been destroyed already. Also, no? No, he's, he's, he's um, happy to admit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Characteristically, conflict would be what would drive a masterpiece, things with a sense of aggression. And obviously that aggression goes against someone who would then presumably destroy it or want to destroy it. Like, like I don't know, the church did to everything. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it's a weird answer. The, the, honestly, this whole text is weird. Um, how he talks about progress and he extols creature comforts feels very, un, very unfuturist. <laughs> it's so different and then next week mm-hmm. it, it becomes even weirder uh, where he, he tries to prophesy the future the hundred, a hundred mm-hmm. years into the future which you know we can do a little bit of what rings true what did he get right what did he get wrong um, it's also but, odd in the context of, of the whole le futurisme right because this isn't like a, a later futurism that is no. I guess already infected through and through with whatever his political ambitions in, you know, the futurist party or something like that. This is still like core doctrine, no? Yeah, this is 1911. This is very early. You know, we're only uh, a year or two after the first uh, manifesto is out. This is all pre-Saint-Point. So those works that we did with Saint-Point, this is before that. Uh, and we were already getting these these very odd concessions from Marinetti. Uh, uh, but I, I think the second one, before we actually move on to, mm-hmm. to specifically get to these odd things that he mentions about the modern world, uh, he, he actually says that part of the issue is that... Um, I think this is the second uh, response is where he actually uh, takes on the question properly. 
apart from just mm-hmm. conceding it. But he does so in a roundabout way. He says that uh, because there is no religion these days, there is no understanding of mysticism, of kingly authority, of theocracy. He's assuming that most of the works of the past will have some sort of tie into those things. And you have to have a sensitivity to those things in order to actually take them in. Modern persons in the early 1900s, and certainly today, um, uh, mm-hmm. don't, he thinks, lack it. You know, it's, it's the, he, he's very influenced by Nietzsche, we have to remember. So, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. It's, not, it's that religion will never have that same power. The ideas of the sublime and of the transcendent will never hold sway on human minds mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. After the late eighteen hundreds, and so when he's writing, he thinks. Right, that, I, mean, I think that's that's true. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I mean, that's just definitely true. Yeah. But uh, and he he will carry on with that. He he sort of develops too later on with talking about a modern aesthetic. You know that why would we need these royal palaces uh, 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 made out of granite or anything that uh, these or these mighty cathedrals uh, that sort of. Uh, a part of little medieval towns and you'll have little people in them praying for certain things it it won't happen in the early 1900s he thinks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which when Definitely. he puts it like that is far more palatable to most people you know it's if i many of the earlier manifesto or other manifestos i should say because this is still quite early it's they're kind of geared towards a youth this man mm. who is mm. sort of prepared to sort of you know turn up turn the tables over and yeah sort of they're they're, they're, ga- they're they're aimed at uh, our very real characters of the you know beretted frenchmen but or with this italians that are smoking and drunkards no no not this one the no, previous it, one. it could be talking to people who are sort of a little bit jaded but kind of used to some of the luxuries of modern life he seems to be talking to middle-aged architects yeah don't you right? think? It's there's, strange. There's that, yeah, it's completely. Even, even in the language. And I mean... Um, it's uh, not as exciting. Um, or, or, you know, he doesn't seem to... He doesn't talk about speed as the primordial element or something. Oh, he he maybe gets to something really quite interesting later on. Um, yeah. He starts those, to show some of those colors by the end, though. A, a little but, um, bit. But certainly this beginning, then, this is why I say that way. it's very different to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. he. This is why I say that it's very different. He seems to ease you in and uses these very different arguments. Normally, he's sort of in your face. In this, he's kind of saying, "Well, actually, I'm going to concede these points. I'm going to be soft." Yeah. And then he says, "Well, actually, there's no point. These masterpieces, even though they have survived, they don't mean anything to anyone because no one has the sensitivity to be able to see them because it relies on mm-hmm. ideas of transcendence or sublimity, and they don't have it. It relies on ideas that." authority from a higher power or a church or something that is has god-given power and we don't we have this democratic spirit but you know and i read out at the beginning the contradictory forces of fight so he mentions finance revolutionary labor unions metallurgy electrical so he's talking about these these structures in terms of society um, as well as our technology uh, aviation, the right to strike. So he brings in uh, more social things, revolutionary powers of the masses. And then, um, so he, he's got these more communal things and technological things, and then looks to the individual. Recent habits of hygiene and domestic comfort. 
and uh, with large, well-ventilated apartment blocks. This is the first time we get some references to some sort of architectural uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 ideas from Marinetti. And, you know, he's even talking about toilets and nice big halls for people to meet in and nice hillside villas and comfortable trains, absolutely comfortable trains. This is very soft. But is that even a sentence? Absolutely comfortable trains. Is that paragraph a a sentence? Uh, Well, it's connected with a semicolon. So um, I don't think it's a sentence, though. What do you mean? Anyway... Uh, look, the contradictory forces of finance and revolutionary labor unions, new developments in metallurgy, electrical engineering, and aviation, the right to strike, equality before the law, the principle of majority rule, the revolutionary powers of the masses, the speed of international communications, recent habits of hygiene and domestic comfort, which require large, popular, well-ventilated apartment blocks, absolutely comfortable trains, tunnels, iron bridges, huge and fast ocean liners, hillside villas, sighted towards the cool sweep of horizons, immense meeting halls, and perfect chambre de toilette for the rapidly... Rap, rapid daily care of the body. Yeah, no, he's just lift, he's listing things. Yeah, it's not a sentence. No. It's odd. It's odd. Um, but the thing is that he lists. No, he lists. Uh, okay. But what so he does he list, lists them, I mean... They are directly responsive to utility, right? Yes. And that's why there's no need for the, the palace and so on. Then he has... I, I'm just going to read this bit because I really... It was, it's a good image. What use would it be today to launch into the sky the pinnacles of those majestic cathedrals that used to mount the clouds, joining the hands of their ogives to pray in defense of the little hamlets that cowered in their shadow? Oof. So I looked up what ogives are. Oh, yes. And so those are the, uh, the, the, the curves that form the outline of a pointed Gothic arch. So it's those places in large Gothic cathedrals where the arches meet. Ah. So that's the image. That those archite- that, that architecture is as if it were praying to help the lowly oh, farmer okay. that goes that's beneath nice. them. That's pretty good. I, that, was, oh, that was the best part for me, I think. Um, yeah, so, okay, what do you make of, what do you make, what, what do you make of this futurist turn to creature comforts? Well, it's something that's new. To, to banal middle-class values. <laughs> well, it, it, it's strange because he, he hasn't quite done it. And, of course, we have to remember that this is originally one work, and so we have to be careful how much we say early on um, because by the end, he does actually have a... He present, In the second part, he presents this utopian idea where he thinks hmm. people end up, and it actually gets a little bit angles uh, in it you know it references that bit of in the morning someone can go out and do this in the afternoon go fishing and in the evening be a critic or he gets kind of like that and thinks about perfection and very strange uh, um it's electric war i think is one of the lost texts of futurism that's, that's sort of missed out and it's a great mm-hmm. shame um it's oh, I think it deepens our understanding, unless we're to think that this is a bad day for Marinetti and that uh, he should have never have done this work. But I don't think we can do that because when he looks at it again four years later, he not only uh, decides to republish it, he translates it. So he puts more work into it again and then even thinks about, oh, actually, it would work better in two parts. So he stays true to it even by uh, 1915. 
So we, so, we have so to assume that it is it is important to him. Important to yeah. him. We can't just think that so, oh he wrote it and it was a mistake. Okay, so the, in that case, um, the question then is: Is there a tension between energy and comfort? You know, is there a tension between speed and comfort and progress in that sense? Because progress does seem to lead. I mean, we we have two very contradictory views. Well, are One they contradictory? Not, maybe not, but like at least formally they are. Right, formally they one might of them appear unusual. A view of danger and of speed and recklessness. Right? What what is it? Recklessness is a common daily practice. Yes. Whereas the other is a view of comfortably sitting on a very fast train and maybe reading the papers. As, you know, well, you, you you sip lovely instant coffee because that's very futuristic, um, <laughs> and you come home and you have some appliances and whatever. Well, before are those two things in conflict? Two be- things in conflict. I think they are. Before we fully answer that, I think we then need to uh, mention at least two things uh, here. After he he, he mentions uh, uh, these these creature comforts, he does make reference to. Uh, we are creating the new aesthetics of speed. We have almost abolished the concept of space and notably diminished the concept of time. And so abolish the concept of space. This is because you can travel great distances. Suddenly being uh, Mm -hmm. across the city, being across countries, that doesn't matter anymore uh, because you can take the train, you can take a car, you can take a plane. Distances that would have once taken you weeks. I mean, I think when uh, Samuel Johnson travelled up to Scotland, just to get to Scotland when he did his uh, great tour with uh, uh, Boswell, uh, it took him about two weeks, I think, roughly to get to Scotland. And that was in 2015, Tom. (laughs) You imagine (laughs) what it must have been back back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, the distances just don't matter. And he also thinks time has changed because he'll make reference to this later on in the second part, Mm -hmm. but he makes references to telephones. So he's even aware that in different uh, different places, people can talk to one another, people can connect. And so I think that's why he's talking about that space uh, is abolished and time notably diminished. And then he immediately leads into, we are thus preparing the ubiquity of multiplied man. We will soon arrive at the abolition of the year, the day and the hour. And that's when he leads so into odd. that the days, the, the seasons are changing because you can have uh, heaters in the winter. And also, I think that there's this weird kind of foresight that today reading it, which is that our technological uh, work will lead to changes in the globe. Very prominent now with uh, the climate crisis that everyone's very worried about. So reading it today is something of a, oh, he might have accidentally seen a little bit too much there even though he hadn't known it but also i I think there's there's an almost a bigger thing there it's it's as if you know if you if you were to abolish space Mm. and time i guess i mean i don't know if that makes sense but if if you were to do that it sort of obviates motion yes um i'm thinking a bit like uh parmenides or something Mm, yes is it parmenides i think right where where there there is no motion. Yep. There is no movement. Um, and there, there is something that happens when you get rid of those concepts. And I mean, well, you can think about on, it because, a bit, a bit uh, like on, our it modern lives. Because Zeno also thought that. You get the Zeno's uh, Zeno, sorry. It, 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 it might have been Zeno then. Or maybe more than one of them thought this. I think um, more than one of them. I think because uh, one of them thought yeah. these things were illusions. Zeno certainly did. 
Because mm-hmm. he has uh, Zeno's no, paradox. Also, didn't think there was any motion. I think. I'm, yeah, I think he. I think he wouldn't bet my life on it, but I'm. I'm, no. I'm pretty sure. So, it, the the point there is, there is a sense in which, although there is a kind of you know, I guess fast paced rhythm of transformation, we in our lives become ever more static. We move less. You sit there, and you'll you'll sit there talking on the phone or whatever, and you can live in your house from your computer, and there is a glimmer of that. I'm probably reading too much into it, but there's a glimmer of that there, and and I I still wonder if this isn't a tension, if there isn't a tension between this and the danger and the aggressivity and. See, I, I think, think there that is. is I, th- I think that is reading a little bit too much into it. I think that's more of. Um, uh, He's using hyperbole here when he's talking about the abolishment of the concept of space and notably the concept of time. I think he's 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 going overboard with it. He doesn't really Well, I mean maybe, but he but he is talking about that specific thing, right? He is talking about uh trains making space yeah, tiny. Exactly. Yeah. Right? That's it. Yeah. And phones, I guess, making time weird. But and also all the, of these when things he talks about messing with our concepts of time and space. And that's kind of what I mean. And I, but I think it's, it's just if you extrapolate that fully, you you do get to a weird like lack of speed in 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 an immediate lived way. Well, I think I think the best way to think about the what he means by the concept of time here is when he later on develops it to say that the seasons are merging together and. Uh, uh, the noctambul- to quote him, the noctambulism of sure. work and pleasure in France, Italy, and Spain, has it not already melted together night, day and night? So, uh, right, so the, the fact that you've got more opportunity for speed, yeah, electric lights, coffee, and... all of these things, stimulants. It's meant that you can operate at any time of the day, um, and you know it doesn't have to be during sunlight hours. You can sort of live your life to the fullest at any hmm. time. Whereas once upon a time. Even when you had gas lighting, it, there were certain limitations. Sure, to, to what you could do. So, the, did, did you know a bit about H.G. Wells's versions of Utopia? No. So, he, he used to think, um, I, I don't know where, which book this is from, um, but there's this vision of people in futuristic utopias as being beautiful and strong and great and totally fulfilled and things like this. Like this. Right. Oh, man, I don't know if this is like a Kurt Vonnegut thing talking about H.G. Wells' version of Utopia, but, or maybe, maybe Brave New World? I don't know. There is, I think it might, might be Brave That's New World. That's Huxley. There is, yeah, yeah, Huxley talking about this. Um, I think one of the characters might mention it even. There is no reason for those people to be beautiful and strong in that Utopia, right? They need not their muscles, and they need not their minds if they do live in a Utopia free of adversity. So that's not exactly what what Marinetti's going for, but there is that latent tension, I think, in praising progress of this kind. Um, yeah. Do you think you end up with like the the sort of people in Wally, where once you do actually, you know, live in your chair that is all electric and it can traverse any distance, and you don't have to raise up your arms or legs or anything? Yes, I mean, and I, that you basically I'm, I'm, just sort of fall into lethargy unlike, and yeah, suffer I mean, muscular dystrophy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unlike unlike Wally, I don't think that's the fault of the individual that is lazy and slack jawed. Um, but yes, 
I mean, th- th- I think this is something that we'll have to touch on more next week uh, when he actually, because uh, I think he actually has a, a little bit of a critique of uh, some of the psychology that is inherent in capitalism, which is the idea that competition uh, will increase productivity. I think Marinetti thinks quite the opposite, um, which is interesting. But uh, to, to just mm. uh, pull us back then. Yeah, anyway. Um I think that you're right that the core thing here is we, we've got this strange thing where he's talking about these creature comforts and things like that. Uh, but is is it intention? We've got notes of these key points of he's talking about the multiplied man who we call the machine man because we like that, um, which seems a little bit more, a little bit better. Um, but... Uh, well, by the, he he actually says that in our first manifesto, you have read this uh, affirmation, which is what I read out uh, earlier on, which raised a hurricane of disapproving. A racing car is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. I will leave you an explosive gift. So he, what he's saying here is he's going to further uh, uh, develop this idea. And he actually says, I'm going to complete it. Another image that best completes our thought. So he's almost going back to the first manifesto and making a correction uh, mm. saying that as it stands, it's not quite right. And what people have taken, they should disapprove, but there's a little bit more to it that will change the way that they think about it. And he, he, he describes it as an explosive gift. Nothing is more beautiful than the steel frame of a house under construction. Now, that seems a far tamer image than the racing car when compared to a uh, victory of Samoth Race. But here he's, he's actually making a, a, a far more a stronger statement that nothing mm-hmm. is more beautiful than the steel frame of a Obviously, he must think that a steel frame of a house includes this, this idea of speed and of technological innovation. But it will lead to, uh, uh, you know, the comforts of home instead of these log cabins or, you know, difficult roofs and bricks. No, suddenly you've got these uh, multi-story uh, buildings made with iron and, uh, and steel. And Almost. Yeah, there's there's beauty in this kind of comfort, um, even though it's all uh, mechanical. So I think you have to we we instead of immediately thinking that there's a ten, there is a tension. I, I can see exactly, but I think we have to understand that futurism, if we're to treat him charitably, has to be touching at something more. We have to try to unify these two ideas, and the question is how we do that. He, he's He's thinking that somehow this uh, speed and technological innovation and modern life uh, is somehow al- allowed within, you know, it's compatible with comfort. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in a sense, he's, he has to, right? Because that seems to be what the future is doing. Um, if the future were doing something else, but he's not against. He's not against prescriptivism. And something else. He's not purely descriptive. He's not. He's. He, uh, uh, he's. He's happy to prescribe things. You know, he's saying that what a poet should be. He's saying mm. that uh, uh, this is how people should be. They should accept these modern innovations. But so. It, but it's still so odd. So I. I think. I think the metaphor of the house is different. Um, I don't think necessarily that it will lead to something comfortable, and that's what matters about it. I think it's mm. rather that um, it is in the, 
I, I, I guess what I mean, what, what I wrote down is to embrace not just speed, but it's corollary flux and the perpetually unfinished. And mm. I think that's what that building represents, but it also represents progress, right? It's you're building something. It's not merely a destructive act. Um, so I guess the destructive act of the libertarian is it's like, yes, but also the constructive act of a builder. Um. But how curious it should be that he then says that you must always assent to progress, always have faith in it, even though it may be a liar, a trickster, it can hurt you. You still have to go with it. It will always be right, ultimately. Well, because it will, it will happen. Yeah. There's, there's it's a not a means just to find the end kind of a, thing. I think it's something else. I think you're right. No, it's, it's a fatalism. It's, it's a fatalism that I guess in the end you have to bend towards the future. You know? Uh, the future will come whether you like it or not. But it's it's great that he has this bit where he says, you know, naturally the works in which we have expressed the whirlwind of intense life spinning toward an ideal future cannot be understood and appreciated by a public overwhelmed by a savage eruption and offended by our cruel violence. He's aware. He's got. He shows great self-awareness in this one. He's almost kind of almost he's not quite but almost apologetic for it, uh, where he says, yeah, yeah, I know. In some of our other ones, people have been, you know, they think, oh. They've been a bit repulsed by it, repelled, pushed back. But he's already saying that, well, later the public will love our works because they're already starting to have problems with the past. And, he, you know, and I think it's a, a really interesting argument that he puts forward, which is that, well, what about these masterpieces? He says, well, people today can't understand them anyway. Mm-hmm. But also we're, we're overlooking something. We sneer at things already built and finished, bivouacs of cowardice and sleep. We love only the immense mobile and impassioned framework that we can consolidate always differently at every moment according to the ever-changing moods of the winds with the red concrete of our bodies set firm by our wills. So I, I actually find that idea really, really creatively fulfilling. Mm. Um, were I, a, well, as the... Uh, you know, youngish goal getters, Thomas. Yes, the time that we are. Um, that that's kind of great. That's kind of great to not only praise the finished, but the perpetually unfolding. Um, that's kind of a good recipe, I think. Yeah, he has stuff. these weird sort of you know, he, like that's that's really good. Um, but he's not life then, denying you know, in many ways. He, he, no. In other works, like the first one, the very first manifesto, he does have these death wi- this death wish. But yeah. at the same time, he kind of wants you to flourish in this very odd way. Yeah, he does. I, I think to be honest, though, this one confuses me more than it more than than not. I mean, where are the hurling your defiance at the stars? You know, no progress ascent to it. It will happen anyway. Okay, but I think I think that's that's decent bit. What are we to make of the skulls? Okay, uh, so the skulls. Uh, Marinetti then uh, leads into after having sort of allowed us to get used to the temperature of the waters. Uh, he then forces the rest of us in. We have to dip below the waist. Uh, sorry, uh, we're up to our waist now. Um, he talks about uh, s- uh, these Japanese merchants who are digging up bodies 
uh, and selling skull. Uh, sorry, not skulls. Uh, selling bones. They won't sell skulls, but they'll sell the rest of uh, uh, people's corpses. These bones, and they'll use them in combin in a combination, some sort of mixture, uh, to make a new kind of explosive coal. To quote him. Now we mm. don't need to really go into the details of this. It's uh, he, he ends up actually getting into the nitty gritty of how the weights and of the money. Um, I mean, I'll say that. I'll say that. One hundred sin, seven kilograms of human bones, bring in ninety-two kopecks, which isn't too expensive. Mm. Um, and he talks about human bones as uh, having the property of uh, uh, sorry, uh, a fearsome mixture of this uh, principal element coal made from human bones, which has the property of violently absorbing gases and liquids. Now, whether this is true or not, I've no idea. I did try to find out and it... I... No, but all, all charcoal does that. Just what charcoal Yeah, does. but with the bones? Yeah, is that just nonsense? Being, and is there being, anything particular about eccentric. human bones? Or is this no, Marinetta being hyperbolic? All charcoal is the same, really. Um, I hope no chemist is listening and knows <laughs> that that's not true. But no, I, 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 I think it actually kind of is. Um, yeah, this is weird. Uh, and in fact, really he, bizarre. he has, I mean, he I, does take yeah. on his full Marinetti thing of the Japanese merchants who direct this absolutely futurist commerce. So, he, mm. you know, he completely takes it under his wing. Buy no skulls, evidently because they lack the necessary qualities. I share their contempt for the poor caskets of traditional wisdom. So he's, he insults skulls. You know, this is where Marinetti's starting to take on his more usual garb. Yeah, no, definitely. Then he, I guess to, to wrap this up as he would, do we seem too brutal? This is because we speak under dictation from a new sun, which is certainly not the sun that caressed the placid backs of our grandfathers whose slow steps were sagely measured to the lazy hours of provincial cities and cobblestones mossy with silence. Uh, yeah, so disgusting you know, air and so on. He, he, you know, so again, we have the repeating uh, 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 symbol of the sun. Uh, he mm -hmm. likes the sun. We've seen this constantly in the works. It's a, it's a, uh, one of the things that stands out as part of uh, future. It's, it's they abjure the symbolist masters, but they will use some mm -hmm. symbolist tropes um, and devices. It's, it's funny. It's funny. I'm, I'm, I, I hadn't thought of that essential problem kind of laid bare by that kind of discussion of H.G. Wells, that what the in the future there is... Well, the, yeah, the comfort, the comfort thing. I mean, it's, it's very like Brave New World, that, that there is no need for much of anything uh, in, in a distant future, in, in, in the future. Well, that, that I mean... There's no need for a lot of these things. Um, this is going to be danger, all of that. I, oh, you don't yeah. think there is much of it? Okay, so this is why I think I mean, Marinetti like, like has the psychology. A, he thinks mm -hmm. that human it's a weirdly deflating. Yeah, but it's a, it's a weirdly deflating thought now that I put it together with, with futurism. Um, but he seems to think, yes, that you need to have the passions inflamed to constantly move forward or something like this. I'm looking forward to next week when we do the second mm -hmm. part because that's when he tries to foresee the future around the time where we are. Um, yes, and uh, uh, but but just before that, um, 
he he, he finishes the manifesto by you know similarly sort of you know, looking at some objections and further develops mm-hmm. he makes this reference to aristotle and in another version it's to homer um saying that you know this the most of the souls of today so this is where he starts to become insulting again uh, and besides how could we make their sluggish souls comprehend souls more like aristotle's in another version homer's than our own so um i actually loathe the 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 homer link um, mm. Because I actually think that the Aristotle one has a little bit more to it. Aristotle, of course, being 2,400 years ago, Homer a bit further than that, uh, or uh, further away than that. But you've got Aristotelian physics. Um, Aristotle uh, proposing the, the the idea of the four elements and then the fifth element being aether. So you're dealing with a different kind of physics, whereas Marinetti is operating in a post-mechanical physics of Descartes and Galileo. Um, so I, I actually like the link to uh, Aristotle that to some Aristotle of these people are so far away that they can't understand any of these technological insights. They will have no idea what it is. They'll still be thinking about the ends of things, how the telos of things, where things appropriately should be, that fire is just naturally above earth. Uh, that's just where it will tend to be. But Marinetti's not interested in that. He's only interested in um, um, uh, distance, uh, he's only interested in speed. Um, he hasn't got I, velocity. He hasn't also, got direction, unfortunately. But uh. no, but I think that's the the, the collapsing of space and time, sort of yes. into speed or into, or I, I guess the collapsing of time into duration. Mm. Um, yeah, that's very Bergson. Um, yes, Bergson there is Ber- Bergson's. Yes, he will be yeah, around. There's a lot this of time. Bergson in this, and yeah, I mean, we 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 know that we're heavily influenced by him. Um, that makes makes a good deal of sense. I think the only thing I want to say briefly about the skulls mm. is obviously... Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> I've kissed okay, his I'm gonna stop you there because a thousand times. <laughs> Thomas, I'm going to stop you there because you can, can, you can say the whole thing. <laughs> and in a future podcast, Thomas will, in fact, recite all of Shakespeare. For <laughs> <laughs> um uh, oh, by the way, you, nice French pronunciation at the start there. Oh, you like that, did you? Normally, it's yes. atrocious. <laughs> that was good. But the the skulls thing is is uh, revolting. Yeah. Well, it's the fact that revolting. they're not used, you think, how dare they not use the skulls as well? Yeah, they're perfectly good bones. <laughs> how dare they waste them? No, it's... I mean, I guess knowing, knowing what was to come uh, makes it entirely disgusting to me. But even then, there's there really is something disgusting about using using human bones and human bodies as as things. Um, but I guess not of your futurist. See, I, I your futurist, that's even if but it's a stubborn a, a, attachment. No. Yeah. But I don't think it, we have to worry about whether it's true or not. Uh, it would be worrying if it is true, and it very well might be. I've no mm. idea that whether there's some sort of concoction that people thought. I don't see how it could work, but perhaps, I don't know. Um, no, it's irrelevant. But uh, I think as a symbol as well, it works well. It has this double meaning, which even if it is true, uh, because uh, you're digging up the past, and you're digging up something that is very important to most people. I mean... It, virtually everywhere in the world, every community has uh, some sort of thoughts and value about how you treat dead bodies, that there is some sort of significance, some sort of reverence, and that it, there's a, something quite terrible about digging them up. And, you know, digging them up is bad enough, being these grave diggers, but suddenly to just 
you know, sort of mulch them. Uh, and, I mean... Well, which is something that's being done now. With what? Do you mean... Uh, which is something that we're sort of kind of moving towards. Mulching In, in different ways, but yes. Um, For well, explosive you know, new... coal? No, not that exactly, but definitely um, not burial or cremation. But many of these different things, and some of them are to do with, you know, turn your body into plants. Other ones are... Oh, oh yeah, and you can, put, you can put pet ashes into, into like, little jewels. Like but, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see it as something... Like, I will... I bet you in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, we'll see some company that will pay you some amount of money to take the body and do something with it. You, you know? can already get... Uh, uh, bits of skin off your off your dead relative, like uh, say a tattoo, you can have mm. it uh, preserved. Would you just put it up on your wall? Yes. I mean that's very Bentham. If, it's a it's bit very much. Bentham. It's a bit much, but I think so. That I also yeah. think as a symbol, it works very well for Marinetti that it is a, a a great big insult to the past, and that's why he says that this is yes. These people are encompassing. So. By the end of it, that's why I wanted to say that by the end, he does actually become the sort of the full Marinetti that we know. But just to finish up then, I, you know, discomfort then, let's just think, he's not saying that, he says the comfort of the trains. And he also talks mm-hmm. about hygiene. We didn't mention hygiene. It's interesting that he should mention hygiene. But um, in the cars, he's not assuming that people are sitting on spiked seats. I think he's perfectly happy having like leather, uh, some sort of padded seats uh, that are comfortable. He never says, yes, you have to sit on something that will hurt your back. He's not painful like that. And I think he also thinks that the suffering is only worthwhile if it's either in a sense of kind of overcoming in this Nietzschean kind of way, or if it's for an honourable kind of sense, which in his case is for death or for blood or for (laughs) war. That's it. that's what he's going to be thinking, right? So I I don't think he'll especially be thinking of you know, like uh, like flagellation or an ascetic lifestyle is especially good. I think he'll actually say that that's a bad thing. Hmm. So maybe that's how you can start to square up some of the ideas of comfort. Right. Does that? How right. does that? How do you feel with that? Yeah, I mean. It, it, He's never had a philosophy of of um, pain, suffering for suffering's sake. Yeah, uh, but there is, I think, something odd about having something aggressive and something comfortable at once. Well, he does also. It's in a this strange world. It. He mentions would, no, in the no, manifesto, I, like, I people does, dying but... for constructions. You know, five pe- He doesn't mention this here because it's too early, but, I mean, five people died uh, out of the 3,400 labourers building the Empire State Building. And yeah, he here has, you know, uh, he yeah, references he someone, he you know, the great drop of blood on the pavement, a fallen construction worker. So he does have that bloody image still, but he, he's happy talking about the comfort of trains and of hygiene. Yeah, I mean, Marinetti is a, is a guy that, I guess, would ride into battle on a Rolls-Royce and shoot oh, he someone would. with a lovely pair of black leather gloves and then get back in the car and drive off. He would! Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's 
It's bizarre. It's it's it, it gets it gets more and more. I, this is kind of ominous. But do you think ominous, that this really. is a really important one? I, uh, the fact this that feels it's ominous omitted. because there's a yeah, but it feels ominous to me. There's he's like he's allowing violence to be regimented within society in some way. He's allowing violence to be absorbed into into order, into progress, into civilization, and. I think that's a distinctly fascist move. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what that is. It's not a tension. In fact, it isn't. It's just... I, I, think, I think that's why this is important. It sort of came to me now. Okay, okay. No, that's... See what I mean? Yeah, no. Well, yeah. I, I'm tempted to push back on it with a with an odd, um, well, actually not that odd, but a, with a reference to to punk, because they want to have that. Theirs is a philosophy of energy, insofar as there was a, a kind of distinct philosophy behind it, at least in terms of London punk. Uh, but they had a kind of ideas of when that kind of violence was appropriate. But then it wasn't always, and they they were happy to sort of you know, stop the fists flying in the right kinds of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, not, but it's yeah, not odd to call I mean, them fascist, kind of, I think. Some punk was kind of fascist, though. Some punk, yeah. And it did go in that direction. I mean, it, the, that can happen. And energy energy does not care which way it goes. No. I think that the fascism is is that absorbing of violence into progress, into civilization. Mm. And, and having, the, having having that distinct... It feels profoundly dissonant to have uh, to to talk about violence and the profound desacralization of even the human body mm-hmm. in the same text as uh, talking about hygiene and lovely trains and a, a warm bed at night or whatever. But also, hold but on, that is maybe a there's something that you we can be should... profoundly comfortable with. Maybe there's something that we should consider. Maybe yeah. we're actually doing him a disservice here intellectually. Maybe when he lists those things off, he's still talking about the second point. That this is just what... Maybe he's writing for the audience. He's writing a manifesto that's specifically designed for people who already are taking care of their hygiene, who already are suited to uh, a particular uh, comfort and things like that. And he's then trying to bring them into the fold into this way of, yeah, you're going to go the full way into the uh, land of violence and brutality. and uh, But he's energy. showing them that those things aren't in conflict. No. Or at least that they... Necessarily. Or at least that it's a stepping stone. Yeah, but they're not necessarily in conflict. I mean, he, think, he thinks, yes, but keep, keep, I mean, keep building. No? Yeah. keep fixing but yeah i mean that's that's what i see here but it's an interesting one and i guess we should leave it there before uh, and next mm-hmm. week we'll be looking at part two where he gives his predictions for the future all right are you excited for that ariel because you haven't i'm looked very at excited yet. for that and i think i think it'll be interesting i think we next week uh we can we can kind of think on 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 these ideas and uh see if we still agree then are you are you glad we we separated this now you know what? I am. Because you win. Yeah, Ariel was a little bit uneasy. Let's just do electrical war. 
All right. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Manifest Image podcast.